On GDC Podcast episode 16, we have Greg Kasavin, creative director at Hades developer Supergiant Games. We'll talk narrative design, his journey from game journalist to game developer, and the allure of the roguelike genre. Back in a sec. Welcome to the House of Hades. And we're back. Uh, this is Chris Graft. Is this how we do this? Okay. Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's been so long. Yeah, it has been. It has been a while. We're just going to use this take, too. I'm Chris Graft, editor-in-chief of Gamma Sutra, and hey, Alyssa. Hey, I'm Alyssa. Uh, I'm Alyssa Macklin, news editor, associate <laughs> publisher at Gamma Sutra, expert podcaster. Yeah, we haven't done the intro in a while, and if you're a regular listener, you will know that after 15 or 16 episodes... We have still not got the intros down quite perfectly. But I'm afraid to listen to our first one because I feel like this is way better than we started. Uh, but I will never know because I'll never listen to it. I think the first one we just didn't do an intro. We just had the guest start like mid mid sentence, and then we just sat and uh, and listened to them. Bold. Yeah, yeah, we are bold. Um, so, what have you been up to for the past? Oh, I don't even. I shouldn't ask. Yeah, it's, how's your, it's alternating how's your D&D last and month? Hitman, so that's just okay, that's, good. It's the same yeah. answer for that period of time. So All right, D&D let's just, Hitman. yeah, D&D Hitman, rest of the world, having a normal one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm excited about the guest we have coming on today, but I think that maybe we should talk about uh, some GDC stuff really quick, since this, this is technically the GDC podcast. Yeah, exciting guest, inci- exciting new GDC content for this interesting period of time we have right here <laughs> um oh registration uh is now open for the gdc masterclass spring sessions so we had gdc masterclass fall sessions and uh they went so swimmingly we're going back to school in the spring what do you think what do you I think i was gonna make that? a too school too cool for school joke but i'm like no that's lame and then i just no it's all good you should uh i'll go check it out we have some people returning to uh there's actually one now where you can get certified in agile uh so that's that's uh obviously production and we have some for level design now and writing already getting some signups uh so that is exciting yeah the benefit here is uh versus just watching a presentation you actually get hands-on time with the instructor in a call um where you can get feedback have conversations ask questions and just get like really uh engaged knowledge so it's a pretty cool offering i think yeah they're actual classes Uh, you go to school uh you grab your trapper keeper (laughs) <laughs> and you you sit down uh but it, in hand yeah but yeah they really are courses they're like uh all day all day courses that you take uh so it's um it's quite more in-depth than sitting in on a you know one hour long uh gdc session so you can check that out at gdconf.com and also Segway, if one hour GD, uh, gdc sessions are your thing um there's also gdc showcase coming up yeah oh that was a good one but yeah. most of those are 30 minutes long yep i realized that as i said it but <laughs> but if you, you know watch what? two of them back to back <laughs> it's an hour long uh but that's a free thing that you can find out about um a, it's kind of acting like a preview uh to the content that we'll have at the uh, big regular gdc um that is a fluid situation there (laughs) obviously but um yeah you can go to gdc showcase it's going to be um free to register for uh you get on the platform and we're going to have some a mix of brand new talks gdc podcast live is going to be there every day uh there's going to be old talks with like I don't say old talks. It's I mean, like a sound new game plus musty. of a talk. Yes, That's how I've been thinking about it. Yeah, new session plus, uh, where you have a classic, uh, a classic GDC session, 
uh, one of the more memorable ones. And the original speaker is going to be in the chat room uh, talking while their past self is talking. So there's going to be somebody in that box that um, that attendees will be able to interact with. They can ask more questions, you know, about whatever topic is at hand. So there's going to be all kinds of uh, new things for an entire week. Um, so we're going to be busy there. That yeah, is coming up. Yeah. March, March 15th through 19th, right? You, you nailed it. Nailed it. That is absolutely when it is. And you can find out more at gdconf.com. Yeah, I think it's guest o'clock. Yeah, it's guest o'clock. <laughs> Our next guest was an accomplished game journalist before making the move into game development. He is creative director at Supergiant Games, which developed the beloved instant classic Hades. Uh, But you probably know him best as a writer at New Type Gaming Magazine in the 90s. (laughs) Let's welcome Greg Kasavin. Hey, Greg. Hello. Hey. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. It's so nice to have you. Uh, so uh, I think that we should get right into it because I've I've been doing uh, game journalism. I'm going to advertise how old I am uh, full time since 2005. But I was reading you years years before that. Uh, can you talk a little bit? I want to I want to get an idea of your journey from being a, um, a game journalist and a critic to a game developer, a creative director at one of like the best game studios out there. Oh, thanks so thanks so much. Um it's 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 wild to look back. Um you know, the time flies as I'm sure you can attest. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean I I was really fortunate to get to start writing about games basically fresh out of high school. Um the the sort of greater backstory to that is I I I've just been playing games all my life since my earliest memory. They just always captivated me um i don't know what i was doing in like arcades as like a six-year-old or whatever in the uh geez it was you know it would have been the late 80s at that point um but i i was playing arcade games i was playing computer games i was playing console games playing western games playing japanese games just i gobbled all of it up um and and i knew from from i i say like since i was about eight that i wanted to make games um i was playing a game called Ultima 4, which is mm-hmm. like the granddaddy of, you know, open world role-playing games. I think I think games like, you know, Skyrim owe a lot uh, to the classic Ultima series. Uh, but but I was playing this game as an eight-year-old, and it was blowing my mind. You could just go anywhere, do anything, like experience the consequences of your actions. And I, I had no idea how people made it, but I knew um, I wanted to do stuff like it. Uh, but when I tried to teach myself programming on and off, including during high school, I just kind of bashed my head against it, and it didn't go that well for me. But I always loved writing um, as kind of the the thing I liked, you know, academically, besides uh, going home and playing video games after school. Um, and so in, in high school, I was playing so many games that at a certain point, I just, like, started to feel, like, almost guilty that I just kind of... I felt like I had to do something productive with it to like be able to justify. <laughs> I still uh, feel like that. everybody who yeah. plays games hobbies. feels like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even like I don't know that you know monetize my hobbies was necessarily the the. <laughs> it, that wasn't like I think just, you know I I was, yeah playing a bunch of games reading you know, Electronic Gaming Monthly and all kinds of like magazines that were around at the time and I'm like I could, I could re- you know I want to review video games. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, I was already on the the internet, such as it was, and um, in there were like, you know, little groups of folks interested in games, and uh, I met um, a friend across the country, um, and we started making a little like fanzine together about video games, and this is like this feels really prehistoric because it was like literally you know printed on paper and then mailed to people that rules um yeah so so that's like how i got my you know reviewing like whatever samurai showdown 2 for a fanzine and that sort of thing uh but it was enough um to to then you know there was a you mentioned uh new type gaming magazine it was like a small uh local magazine in san francisco and um it was like kind of a happenstance thing that i saw that they were like looking for writers and i'm like hey i've i've written stuff 
you know, yeah. I could I could do this or whatever. Um, and and to my surprise, uh, they they got back to me. Um, and uh, you know, th- at this point, I think I um I had like just finished high school basically uh, almost to the day um and and i got to um i got to start writing a bit for for new type and um but they at the moment were already winding down from being a print publication and transforming themselves into a website they were kind of doing this a little bit before it was cool Mm -hmm. uh this is like 1995 ish yeah um and uh one thing led to another. Uh, myself and uh, a couple of colleagues from New Type, we started our own gaming website for a bit that we ran for about a year. Uh, and what then was that one called again? That was called Arcadia Magazine. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that uh, we reviewed like we covered both like pop culture stuff and and games because we were into whatever we're watching kung. Fu. I don't know that kung fu movies or whatever exactly qualify as pop culture actually, but it was yeah. just a weird mix of of stuff like that. Um, and then uh, this is again this is a stroke of fortune I attribute a lot of things to luck um, and I was living in San Francisco and I found out that there's there's going to be a new gaming website that's launching it's called GameSpot mm-hmm. and it's like it's like funded they like actually have money um, and they actually have a staff um, and they're serious about this whole gaming website thing unlike us uh, you know little uh, kind of hobbyist uh, thing that we'd started yeah. um, and uh, and I you know I, I sent them an email sounding more important than I actually was as like a <laughs> Did you 17. lie on your resume, Greg? No, it was it was just the thing that like if you, you no one knows your age when you send an email. So if yeah. you send an email with like punctuation, people just assume that you're you can't be a teenager. This guy's on um, to something. <laughs> yeah. So um so they agreed to meet with me or whatever and they're like you know on on no real basis, but eventually they're like you, you know, we have an internship open or whatever, right? They weren't interested in like acquiring uh, Arcadia magazine or nothing. But yeah. but um, but I'm like, dude, internship like uh, it was a paid internship and everything. So that that was yeah. Um, so this is in 1996 uh, in the fall, and that's when I started uh, as an intern uh, at Gamespot. And uh, shortly after they had launched, and that's when I first met. Uh, folks like Jeff Gerstman, mm-hmm. who's still in the game after all all these years, yeah. um, um, you know, um, at Giant Bomb, um, and and uh, other folks who I remember very fondly. Um, so yeah, I I started uh, writing about games there. Um, it, it was kind of my first real yeah. job, and, and you got it, all the way up to executive editor at, at Gamespot. Y- uh, ed- yeah, editor in chief. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so yeah. Hi, dogs. Apologies. Yes, <laughs> I will wait for them. Eight minutes in. Yeah, they're they're in the podcasting room. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I ended up working at Gamespot for for more than ten years, and yeah, mm-hmm. you know, starting as an intern, ending up as editor in chief. Um, and it was one of those things where I I had completely fallen in love with that work of uh, being a game critic. Yeah. Uh, reviewing games was like still always kind of one of my favorite parts of the job and toward you know toward the end there were uh, pressures on me to you know spend my time on quote unquote more more important things um because i was you know responsible for um big aspects of the site yeah. um man- managing an editorial team and those are yeah, those are in fact more important yeah. things but but um i felt that you know to like reviewing games was at the heart of why I, I loved uh, that work, uh, but the years just flew by, right? And suddenly I'm in my late 20s and no closer yeah. to being a game developer. And I'm like, okay, well, I could blink. And also, also like uh, yeah. re- reviewing games is that's like uh, that, that, that's hard work, not hard work, like working in a coal mine, but uh, that's that's some time intensive, uh, tiring stuff. Yeah, I, I did it. I mean, I would do it mostly. I would it was kind of my second job there as it were of like, I, I would do that as homework. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, but it, again, it was like the part that I, I, I loved it, you know, um, re- reviewing games was an opportunity as always to just like, it, it gave me an excuse to play a lot of different games. Um, not, th- and, and to, to just sort of understand my own feelings about them. Um, because I figured if I could, 
you know, I, I think we all intuitively have a sense of what we like and what we don't. You know, mm-hmm. you watch a movie is like that was a bad movie or that was a good movie, but why, right? I, I like to ask myself why I felt a certain way about a certain game. What were what were the aspects of it that contributed to me thinking that it was so good or that that it was, you know, not so good and so on. And uh, being a game critic, like, it forced me to just be more introspective in that way and try to articulate it. Um, and I hoped that maybe that experience would uh, help make me, you know, a better game developer if I ever got the chance to do it. But yeah, and so I finally got my chance at the beginning of 2007 when I went to go work at uh, Electronic Arts in Los Angeles, as I heard they I f- were. I forgot that yeah. you did that. I was uh, when I was doing my internet stalking. Was, uh, oh yeah, you went to EALA, worked yeah. on uh, uh, Command and Conquer. Yeah. Um, so that was that was one of those things, you know. Again, it was pretty. The the opportunity was happenstance, and that uh, even after all that time at Gamespot, I didn't really know anybody in the industry because we were we were very strict about like I- maintaining an editorial uh, separation. So yeah. it's it, like if I'm reviewing games from different studios, I have to not have personal connections at those studios. So then I'm like, well, I'm no closer to becoming a game developer, and I might, I knew I would regret it if I never had a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you know a former GameSpot colleague who had gone to work at EALA before me, uh, Amira Jami, mm-hmm. uh, who's a dear dear friend of mine still, uh, he 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 always knew I was interested in development, and he's like, yo, we have an opening for a producer if this is something you'd be interested in applying for, and I applied and I and I got it. So. Uh, yeah, then that's when my development journey started, and it's certainly been a roller coaster. Um, at EA, like I think on the very first day is where I met uh, another Amir, Amir Rao, um, mm. and uh, Gavin Simon, who uh, became friends of mine, and you know later founded Supergiant Games, where I'm working now. So it's it, it, there's like a direct line from my EA experience uh, to what I've been doing ever since. But uh, yeah, at some point I. You know, the 10 years felt like a long time, but I've now been in game development for longer than I was in the gaming press. Um, oh, wow. Some, you know, count, doing the math since uh, 2007. Um, but it feels like, it does not feel like that long ago. <laughs> when you when you first made that jump, uh, did you feel, like you, you talked about how you thought that your uh, review experience would give you this kind of unique perspective going into games development. Did that actually happen that way? Did your all your time spent in game journalism give you kind of a different outlook on how games are made once you got inside of the process? Yeah, y- you know what what helped. I think the thing that um, helped me the most directly was the part where um, I had been working uh, on on a big website at at like a at a fairly high level in the organization, and a website is a bunch of software when you get right down to it, and it's software with artwork, um, you know, with design. And, and basically, there, we had uh, departments at GameSpot that, uh, like, were... that basically have counterparts at a game development studio. So I had already... I felt like I already had some of the vocabulary to, to just, like, interact with, you know, uh, with art teams, with, um, w- with engineers... Um, and and with marketing teams and stuff like that as well. Um, so that um, probably helped me at least as much as just my my knowledge of games, however much I had. Um, but I do think my my knowledge around like my ability to have justified playing more games than than average mm-hmm. up to that point just has always given me like a broad. Uh, it, it it makes me able to think of references to things quickly if nothing else so when you when tackling like a design problem maybe i can think of a game that you know handled something in a similar way like a reference to look at or something like that and and that's that is i do find that very helpful if nothing else it's like confidence boosting for a person for whom confidence uh, boosts do not come readily so like in when it comes to games i'm like well i feel knowledgeable about this one thing even Mm -hmm. though i'm like insecure about whatever other aspects of life at least games i've been playing them all my life i feel like i at least know what i like um and and know how to articulate it um whether i can convey that successfully to someone i'm you know i'm working with who knows but um it it just 
uh, that that did help me. It helped me not feel like I was completely out of my depth. Um, and and it also, you know, what also helped me uh, to my, um, I guess, to my delight or something is like, I didn't realize how much game developers cared uh, about the gaming press. Like I, I felt like a lot of a lot of people I came into, you know, the, this pretty big team at at EA, uh, or, you know, a hundred plus people, and I felt like a lot of them were just like. Uh, like appreciate, I I felt uh, like surprisingly like appreciated. Uh, it wasn't like oh here's here's the outsider you don't know anything, like your experience is garbage. It was like oh cool you worked at Gamespot, mm -hmm. so they were very welcoming. That was uh, that was a really uh, it was an awesome team, yeah, um, a great group of people. So um, they they made me, um, it was w you know it's a weird experience. I'd only worked at this one place basically for ten years, so it's like just leaving a group of people that that you've come to know quite well into like a totally new organization with, where you know you know initially only a couple of people it's a big uh it's a yeah. big change and i also moved uh or didn't really move but i started commuting <laughs> down to los angeles for the job so it was a lot of life uh changes as part of that but i was i was i felt very motivated to uh, again at least give it a chance uh, you know maybe i'd come crawling back uh, to writing about games, but um, at least I'd be able to look back and say I, I tried this other thing. Do you do you still think you're gonna come crawling back to writing about games someday, <laughs> or are you a lifer now? You know, I I, uh, I I would be lying if I said the thought never crossed my mind during during the course of the time that's passed. Uh, but mm -hmm. but these days, certainly, um, I I'm I'm really, you know. At, at, at Supergiant with Bastion, our first game, that was the first time I like got to do the sort of job of my eight-year-old dreams, right? Of like world build, like building levels, writing worlds, writing characters, writing stories, uh, like putting it all into the game, like getting my hands dirty on the actual like process of building the thing. Um, and and I and I've been doing you know equivalent work to that on our subsequent games, and that's that's work that I don't imagine I will grow tired of um, w during my lifetime like I, I i i enjoy i definitely enjoy what i do um but it, it, it for all its for all its ups and downs like basically the it, it it i said it was a roller coaster um i think the the highs were higher and the lows were lower compared to compared to my experience at GameSpot probably um uh, but um being able to put these things into the world and then see that people enjoy them uh, definitely means a lot to me and feels like i i'm yeah, I'm yeah. getting to. It's lived up to to my my dreams in that in that respect, as as strenuous as it can be well, uh, from time to time. Well, if you uh, ever want uh, to write again, I have a small freelance budget. <laughs> yeah, hey, I I still love to. I you know every now and then I still get a chance to write about games, and I I still uh, definitely enjoy it. That's and, great. and once in a while, there's that like sleeper game that comes out and and you know you first hear about it through reviews and stuff and i'm like ah oh, i miss Th those are the best moments as a game critic when you like discover yeah. uh, something and help mm -hmm. um help spread the word uh, about it uh, about why it's so great yeah so mo moving on uh to you know closer to your current career status uh you know journey uh uh, like talking about journeys like you go from bastion and honestly greg i forgot that you didn't you weren't like a co-founder of Supergiant because you i feel like your name is so attached to it now but you actually came in a, a little bit after the founding and then worked on the end of bastion i i worked yeah it's a bit it's a bit murky there because i i was there for like um a lot of the formative discussions mm -hmm. with with amir and gavin when we were still down in la okay. i was like roommates with amir and stuff like that so okay. we started we were playing these games i meant uh, there there's like i think it's like four games in particular that really struck me from that era and i think the rest of us it was it was like braid uh, castle crashers plants vs zombies and world of goo nice. were these like really just amazingly crafted um games from small teams released at around that time 2008 2009 um, and and meanwhile we're at we're on this big team and we start we're like what could these games felt so like personal and so well made that we started wondering you know what could we do um, if we could call the shots and just sort of have to do it ourselves 
what would the constraints be and what kind of game would we make so uh, the um we were having we were excitedly having those discussions and then uh amir and gavin bit the bullet and and quit their jobs at ea and moved up to amir's dad's house in san jose california which was vacated by his dad conveniently at the time and founded supergiant and got to work on on bastion um and i joined them yeah i joined them the following year because um, uh, in the intervening time, I went to go work at 2K Games that's based up here uh, in the North Bay mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, California, uh, which is closer to my home because I'd been commuting to Los Angeles from Northern California for basically two and a half years and, and had to like pick up the pieces of my, of my life uh, outside of work and just sort of stabilize things. I, it, like the idea of going straight from my like commuting you know, LA situation into like a startup company <laughs> based uh, an hour and a half uh, away from where I was living was startup like company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was like it was like too much. But but then you know we kept talking and I reunited with them um, as uh, as Bastion was uh, going into full production. Um, so so I, I yeah I got to do the you know writing and and design and all kinds of stuff on that game. Um, who's who's like you know founding principles were 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 near and dear to my heart as well as that of. Um, Amir and Gavin, and yeah. you know our team had grown to. We were seven people uh, by the by the end of that game. So yeah, Transistor was the uh, Transistor was a game that we worked on first, where we had like basically a like a full team uh, from the start, and we grew a little bit. We grew to twelve people <laughs> on on that game. Got a full full team. Yeah, yeah. We did consider it a full team <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah, at that that's, point. That's great yeah. though. Like I I gotta say too. Uh, super giant games over the course of these four games bastion transistor pyre hades they all um you can tell what a super giant game is now there's such a clear line uh where these games build upon each other uh how has your uh you know view on game design or any kind of philosophies that you take uh evolved as the four of those games uh were developed and released yeah we you know i do i do think we have um certain values in common uh, from from game to game like we um we're always interested in that sort of in the connection between the um the the interactive experience and the and the narrative experience and context like how can we tell stories in a unique way Mm -hmm. that that would not translate to other media how can we take advantage of what's unique about games in our approach to storytelling uh, we really like uh, storytelling and world building because we think it helps make when when it's done effectively we think it helps make your your like experience in a game it can make it feel more more meaningful it could add uh, context and depth where you know it might not uh, be there inherently uh, through the through the mechanics alone um, and uh, we you know we really value the the presentation the atmosphere um of our games and and also uh, things like uh, making our games um available to players of like a wide range of of skill levels that's partly coming from our our approach to narrative you know there's nothing more frustrating in games where you're like really engaged with the story but then you just hit a wall like like a difficulty wall and you you just want to see how the story ends but you yeah. like can't you can't make any more progress um, because you know because it's so it's it's too much for you. So we try to build in systems into our games that that um, mitigate those kind of moments, so that if you are engaged in the narrative but you haven't been playing games since you were six or whatever, you can still uh, work your way through and and have a good experience. Um, but yeah, you know more more specifically, each of our games has been like a a reaction to the one before it. Um, in part because you know we ever since bastion at least uh, each of our games has taken approximately three years mm-hmm. give or take and by the time we're done with one we've we've pretty deeply kind of explored whatever it was that we set out to do with that game and and we're kind of ready for something different in some way um and and uh so we naturally kind of lean into other other ideas you know transistor being uh the kind of first obvious example of this where we went from making this like very you know arcadey 
uh, fantasy game in Bastion to this like more deliberately paced, um, almost like strategic uh, science fiction game in Transistor. So yeah. there there's some sur- superficial similarities between the two, uh, but the vibe of them I think is quite different. And how um, you know for us it felt like it felt very different to work on. And then once again with Py- Pyre is completely different from Transistor. And then finally with Hades, this is ba- you know we started that game in 2017, just a few weeks after Pyre shipped. We finally said, "Hey, let's do like, let's pull together all the all the best aspects of our previous games that we enjoyed working on and like build uh, something um, based on that." Because we we'd been like yeah. sort of discarding our ideas so also, much. Also, like no point. no sequels like either. I'm noticing is yeah. is super giant. Just like we have to do something. We want to do something different every time. Yeah, you know, we really. I personally really value the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, people have said there have been a. We're so grateful for the for the nice things that have been said about Hades um, across a lot of different aspects of the game, but I think like a a quietly underrated uh, aspect of why our games have been able to make people you know say nice things about them is that they uh, they surprise people they we i think surprise is really when when you go into a game and it just kind of plays out the way you think it's going to play out i think it can only have so much of an impact on you but when it does things that are like way beyond your expectations those are the games i think that can really stick with you um and and you know cutting back to the bastion days it's like, hey, we have this dark horse advantage. Like, no one knows what we're capable of as a team. No one's heard of us, so we could just do whatever and and make this game that just looks like a hack and slash arcade game actually have a, you know, kind of a deeper experience to it. And and I felt that that worked out very well. Um, but it, you know, then Bastion, you know, sort of put us on the map as a small independent studio. And it's like, oh well. Maybe our dark horse advantage is gone forever, <laughs> and we can't surprise people anymore. And that's part of why we we did Transistor instead of like a like a Bastion two would have been a very sensible thing to do uh, after Bastion. But we we didn't want like that wasn't the path that we were more excited about. We wanted to ask ourselves like, can we do this again? Because we loved you know building the world from scratch on Bastion and then seeing that people enjoyed it. So we we wanted to see if we had like uh, the competency to be able to do it again. Um, and so we've done that each time, like priorita- uh, prioritizing surprise. But we, you know, we love the worlds of our games. We've always said that, like, there's no reason we wouldn't ever, like, go back to them. It's just that when <laughs> when it comes time to decide what to do next, we've just always been excited to try um, something new. I'm kind of curious about how that surprise plays out internally, because you see certain studios are known for like a certain genre, a certain mechanic, and that is their niche, and they make games, very good games along those lines. But how do you kind of um, work with the team and manage a team that seems to be really mobile in the kind of game that they're making? How do you handle surprise internally with your developers who need to have these different skills to express different genres or different gameplay? Yeah, I mean, I think I think for us, it's, it's hard, like... Creating surprise or something through the play experience, I think it's hard to be aware of that as a developer because you're iterating so like nothing is surprising to you necessarily as a developer because you've been iterating from the inside. Yeah, or it's it's the thing you know, particularly with like story moments that are meant to be impactful, like the like the ending of a game or something like that, or some some key moment. It's hard to keep perspective on that over the course of development just because you've seen it so many times. I think it's a Pixar thing from back in the day. They had, uh, I'm going to, I don't remember the exact wording, but they're like, remember the first, the idea is kind of remember the first moment. Remember how you felt the first time you experienced this part in the story because over time you're going to, you're going to grow a bit numb to that. So for us, I think it's like we look, we, we give ourselves time to do some of the small stuff. Um, We don't, over schedule the work so that there's no room for the small and I I call it like uh, this isn't a great expression but I call it like the dumb stuff in the game it, it, like it's the pointless stuff I say it in like a um, 
I mean it in an affectionate in a kind of way. No, I, I mean it in an affectionate way. But the things that are unnecessary in a game, I think, are the things that actually, like, paradoxically, can make a game very special. Yeah, um, there's a lot of that that stuff in, eight, in Hades and and your other games. We try to jam all our games full of it because yeah. you don't. We as a developer, you actually don't know which of those unnecessary, pointless things a player is going to really respond to. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you know, for me, it's like. If you could just put enough of them, then one of them is gonna one of them is gonna so work much on of you. That in, the, in the writing, obviously, in, in Hades, yeah. uh, you know these these tiny quote unquote dumb things where uh, it's like, wait, the game knew that I did that yeah. type thing, it, it, and you know th- that I mean, I think it's not a coincidence that working on stuff like that is also um, one. Of, it, it's fun. It's fun to be able to do the small kind of unnecessary things. Um, it's it's more work, so you have to reconcile that, yeah. and it's the it's the stuff that's the first on the chopping block, if you run out of time. Mm-hmm. So it's um, so I think it's quite tricky there. But I you know again we we learned a lot of like production discipline at EA um, at, at our team. Our team at EA was very efficient um, in in making good games um, in a timely fashion. So we we've just tried to get better and better. Um, from a production standpoint and leave ourselves room uh, for the for the individual creators on the team to sort of chase their passions uh, through their work and um, I, I mean I see like when it comes time for us to decide on a new project like the highest priority for us is like what what will be the most exciting or I shouldn't say the highest priority but something we very actively think about is like what what can our team what will our team do in a unique way that we will most enjoy making we don't like we we think about specifically what our skill sets can what sort of game we can create as a team we don't we don't think about a game like in the abstract and then want to make it it's like what what can we do knowing you know what darren korb our composer and audio director what is he excited about what is gen z our art director excited about can we sort of synthesize those ideas into something. Um, I find that excitement, that individual excitement to me is hugely important because game development can be frankly such a slog um, and so much of it is not fun that the excitement um, can carry you through those sort of troughs um, in in the development when you're like, ugh, you're stuck on a hard problem. You're not making progress uh, as quickly as you thought. The sort of honeymoon period you know, is over for how like excited you initially might have been about the thing, but then you remember that you saw this potential in it, and you and you can you know remain inspired uh, to keep yeah, doing work that, that that matters to you. That shows through in in all the games too. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm I'm glad it does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, I, I want to talk a little bit too about. So there is actually uh, some Twitter discourse this week uh, having to do with writing, and this comes up, you know pretty frequently about how so many games the writing is just kind of tacked on at the end it's like an aesthetic that's supposed to make all the gameplay make sense uh right. co- more cohesive uh but that's not how Supergiant works right we you know um that is that is partially true um but the, the part where we use narrative to like uh justify how the game works is absolutely one of the one of the kind of uh, functions of narrative in, in our game to 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 make um, I, I I think of it as like it's like an adhesive it's like glue that seeps into the cracks of the game to make it all feel like it was all highly deliberate and and every little piece you know was was meticulously planned out when uh, like the reality of game development it's not that clean um, so you like these little bits and pieces are coming together at different times obviously a lot of different people are working on even in a small team you know we're up to 19 people now um for hades and it's still like different people with different perspectives putting their own work into the game um we want it to feel cohesive overall but we don't want it to come from a place of like you know you must do it this way you must all do it this way so that it's cohesive it's like the role of the story can be to find those connections yeah between and otherwise you, and you as a writer uh, aren't brought on in the last you know yeah few months of development <laughs> yes that's th- i guess that's the that's the key point i should have uh, spoken to um right away which is that you know we're thinking about 
the narrative um, and the th- and like the themes of the game that we're working on from the start. Uh, we're we're highly design driven. Like we don't we don't start with a story and back solve the gameplay onto it. That's never been our approach. But we're looking for uh, we're looking for that harmony where the design that we're interested in, the themes we're interested in exploring, can be expressed also through the story and and how it's told. Um, and this applies across the board. Like uh, you know our our music um, has been praised uh, over oh, yeah. time. Uh, the the music of Darren Korb, and he's uh, you know he he's a he's a genius, and I love working with him, and he's a wonderful guy. Um, at, at, but uh, uh, part of the part of the secret weapon, such as it is, is that he's there from the beginning. Like one of the most important things that we do at the start of the project is start figuring out what the music is going to sound like, because that helps identify the entire vibe and tone of the experience that then you know the like even even myself from a writing standpoint you know the hearing the music a certain way it's like yeah okay this really clicks tonally i want to i want to write in such a way that supports this music um and and whereas you could bring on you know hans zimmer or something in the last year of production on a big game and hans zimmer might deliver like super amazing music but it it wouldn't necessarily be integrated as deeply as as the music in a game like ours where we we think of audio as like a really vital a part of the experience and and like creating an atmosphere and and the overall mood um so yeah it's another example of where like thinking thinking about the role of the narrative thinking about the role of the audio um and the artwork obviously right from the start of production i think i think leads to um makes it possible for us to get to a better result in those in those regards is that something that really benefits from what seems to be like a really deliberately small studio that you guys have this like tight yeah. team? Yeah, it really it really really does. It's a it's a good um uh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh we do like I do feel strongly that a lot of what we do only works because we're small. Like I don't I don't see how it could scale necessarily. Um we like we just, you know, a lot of it is that there are these like long-standing personal relationships at the heart of the studio um with with like Amir Rao as kind of the I used to, I, I would think of him as like the commander shepherd or whatever having assembled his like crack team uh all of us like were connected to Amir in some way some of us knew you know I knew Gavin um and and uh Andrew Wang our CTO um like uh, th- from LA but you know like Darren Korb uh, Amir knew, you know, like since they were kids, and Logan Cunningham, who's who's been our principal voice actor in each of our games, uh, him and Darren and Amir, um, you know, played played like youth soccer or something when they were ten. So they all they all would go way back, and those those long-standing relationships um, help us to to again like kind of work through everything and and just be able to be um, sincere with each other. Uh, and 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 yeah, build games about uh, around what we know our our strengths are, as well as to like navigate one another's uh, kind of you know our idiosyncrasies as people. Like we don't have to all work the same way as as you know is expected to be the case sometimes at larger studios where you need more formal you know office hours or, or something like that. When we're a small team, we could just it, it could just be more custom. To, to the individuals that are there. Um, yeah, which I don't know that that can scale up. Yeah, the studio culture, just uh, speaking of that too, it's just interesting uh, reading, I think that you gave an in- interview in 2019, having, uh, you know, unlimited, um, you know, days off required 20 or so, no emailing after 5 p.m. on Friday. I yeah. could get I could get into that one. <laughs> oh boy, the the note, you know, the the no email, I was a big advocate for the no email after 5 mm-hmm. on Fridays um because that I was one of the people who was like wrecked by the opposite of that. Yeah. Um I'd be I'd be, you know, uh at, at like at dinner with my wife and kids or whatever um and and still just sitting on my like oh god yeah. damn it there's this email like the, the the person who sent me the email had no intention of inconveniencing right. me had mm-hmm. had no intention to like dis- it, it, like it was it was my fault right that i would i would sit there and not want to like slow things down for other people you know oh wait i have to answer this 
so that the other person, you know, can keep on going. And we realized that, like, sort of calling the ceasefire, calling the truce <laughs> after five, um, it made this really, um, uh, it made a very tangible difference. So that even, you know, I still, I still work uh, evenings and weekends, like whenever the heck I want. You know, again, when I'm adding dumb stuff to Hades and having fun, uh, some of that work I do on weekends. Yep. But it's, it, but it's on my terms. It, like, and and I do it in such a way that I'm. It has to be work that doesn't require anybody else. I'm not bothering yeah, it's nobody. It's not answering emails. <laughs> yeah, um, and and so it makes it just creates these these quiet moments and made the weekends like feel feel more like weekends. Um, and you know, yeah, from my from my gaming press days, I re- certainly remember what it was like to just get emails nonstop. And it's yeah, it's kind of creates like an oppressive feeling. And having having times when it's quieter is is really important. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna jump back uh, to gushing about Hades. Um, so, <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just love. Um, so I feel like um, well, I, I know that one of the reasons uh, that Hades is so praised is because of the consideration of the mechanics and the design and how that fits with the narrative. Uh, because you know the the story requires. That's one thing I never. I don't think I've ever played a roguelike that uh, acknowledges that the death cycle. And yeah. this is what Hades is about. It's about dying yeah. over and over again and, and trying. You don't have that mechanic, that design without the story that you set up. Uh, so which one came first? Was it like we're going to do a roguelike or is it like, um, you know, or, or did like the story come first or they kind of come together naturally yeah, at the same time yeah they um so the i think the order of decisions was the first one the first thing we decided was was actually early access mm. um before there was any game idea at all um and that was partly again like in in response to something uh, to to having worked on pyre where um you you basically work for three years without knowing what anyone is even gonna think of the thing and and um we we take it you know we announce it we take it to pax uh, we we play test it so we get we get a level of feedback along the way but it's it's really different once you finally put it out there and and kind of see truly what you've made mm-hmm. um so our our thought was like can we can we test our ideas sooner rather than rather than having to like wait three years to find out how we did and um we we also we're drawn to early access because it it we felt it would lead to a, like a more disciplined uh, production approach. Where during the course of development of a game like Pyre, it's it's like a busted game through large portions of development where we're we're tinkering away at different bits and pieces of it. But if but someone couldn't just start the game and play through to the end during most phases of development mm-hmm. because because it's just all you know you're just still trying to build like an accountability thing when you're doing it it's not really um it's not an accountability thing it's well i mean i guess everything at some level is an accountability thing but i think it's like a fault of the development process itself where where we're not um where the things that we're working on are lower level and we're not testing the experience like end to end as like a priority so we figured that with with early access it means that we have to keep the game you know, stable, problem-free, and playable end-to-end for the vast majority of the time, and and um, and that means that once you, once you're actually done with development, uh, there there should, in theory, be fewer problems. It, the way uh, Gavin uh, would put it is like, do you want to find the problems before the game is done? Or after the game is done, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that has an obvious answer. <laughs> so, um, and also, I think early access was it was like different and scary uh, in a way that was like attractive to us um so then early access starts to apply some constraints on the kind of game you might want to make like like early access wouldn't have worked at all for a game like transistor that's you know six or seven hours to play through and you just burn through like a crappy version of it um and then never want to play it again um so we wouldn't get any feedback from uh, like you want you want to have a game that people are interested in playing for a decent amount of time so that you can get their get their feedback on it because otherwise why are you making 
a game in early access. So that drew us to the roguelike dungeon crawler genre, which is something, or or specifically to the roguelike genre, because um, we were just playing, we were playing and enjoying it. We were playing these games like Dead Cells and Slay the Spire, like a whole bunch around that time, just loving those games um, and thinking of these games like Binding of Isaac and uh, Darkest Dungeon, Enter the Gungeon, um, really cool games, uh, but games that didn't really prioritize the narrative experience necessarily, which is something that our, our games have always done, and we would think back to our Bastion days when, when we set out to make an action RPG and we're like, hey, what if we just use this genre format for, for storytelling? Uh, maybe that will help distinguish this game and not make it look like a terrible Diablo clone or something like that, um, and that worked out. So w- it was basically that same mindset of like, hey, w- can we use this genre format uh, to tell a story? Um, and a thing I would think about often is even in the hardest core roguelike game where it resets you completely to nothing um, from one playthrough to another, there is in fact something that you carry forward, which is your knowledge uh, of the of the mechanics in the game, right? So I- using your knowledge, you can get farther and farther in a game like Spelunky or y- you name it. Um, so it was a fun thought exercise to think of um, like... Uh, a game premise where the character had the same ability. So it leads you to like, well, what sort of character would still remember what happened after they die? Well, what about a character who's just immortal? Like they don't die for real because you don't really die for real in roguelike games. They don't like uninstall themselves, right? You play over and over. <laughs> that would um, be so it's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's trying to align, you know, we're always trying to like align the, the like, the player experience with with the narrative uh, it leads you know having a character like Zagreus who can who can be serious one moment self-deprecating another you know like snarky or whatever it's he's he's even though he has a lot of personality on his own he in some ways he is he is there to sort of speak uh, for the player's experience um, and and just trying to find that yeah that strong like I said before that connection between the play experience and the story. So it all kind of flowed from there, that idea that, like, what if there was a roguelike with, with narrative continuity where every time you run into a boss, they remember, you know, they uh, like, you know, you start keeping a tally of who won this time, who won last time. And it was fun to think about. Um, it was... Uh, we had done a game with a complex narrative in Pyre ju- just before, so it wasn't that intimidating of a starting point. Um, and we started chipping away at it basically in early access. Um, and then, yeah, huh, here, and then here we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting way because when you go into like early access, with the, leading with a narrative foot, there's like the risk that your players could yeah. get burnt out of your story so quickly because you're going to be updating throughout, and they might have to restart their save or whatever, depending on how you do that. But the roguelike formula is so welcoming to that that it's like it's a match made in heaven. It's really great. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think. I think it's a. It. I think our consideration of those we we tried to find that match like consciously mm-hmm. uh not knowing how it would work out of course but but the like knowing that early access would have the sort of issues that you described it it led to the specific design choices and approach to the story that um you know that ended up working out for us in in the in the long run in addition to during early access um you know we i approached it like uh it was a fun, you, you know, it was a fun challenge because it was different in, in a lot of ways, but, like, our previous games, you know, it's like dropping a big novel, or Empire's like a novel-length amount of writing in it, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, one day, boom, it's just this giant thing. Um, but with, with Hades, it felt more like a like a TV series or something where uh, our early access launch is like the pilot. You know, we're going to introduce some of the characters, we're going to set up the stakes for what the story is about, but we're, and we're going to allude to there being an ending eventually. But we basically added the the ending uh, uh, of the game uh, in our very in our 1.0 launch. So we built the beginning first, and then we you know introduce subplots and things along the way, kind of ch- again chip away at it with each of our major updates, and then finally you know do the do the finale in the 1.0 launch that was our idea and uh, uh, and yeah that worked um you know that worked mm-hmm. out well we wanted we wanted very much uh, for the ending of the game to like live up to the expectations of our early access players because they were they were quite engaged with the story and the characters at that point 
Given like the differences from like releasing a game and hearing your community feedback versus working on an early access game and having that feedback be more part of the development process, even if you say your next game isn't an early access game, are there lessons you can take from working with your community collaboratively into your next project, you think? Um, I mean, there, there are for sure, but I think one of those big lessons is that early access is, is really valuable. Um, mm -hmm. the, so I think if we didn't, that's not to say it is a foregone conclusion for whatever we do next. It's not, but it's something I think that we would have to give serious thought to um, considering um, I think we would all agree that a part of the success uh, of Haiti, like, like a significant part of the success of Hades is owed to um, the early access development having gone well and resulted in this, you know, bigger and kind of cleaner game than we could have come up with on our own. I think we would, if we didn't do like early access in the traditional way, I think we would still very much want to have like figure out ways to get more feedback from more people sooner in development and more steadily mm -hmm. um, so that every step of the way as we're adding stuff to the game or changing stuff that we could be receptive to how um, uh, so that we could be receptive to how that's changing the experience um, and, and like which opportunities it's then creating for the game. Like one of the really valuable things with early access is just that it lets you, it lets you stay, it, it helps you um, like see the forest for the trees as it were, because, y you know, again, a couple of years into development, you could get really down in the weeds on stuff and maybe start to lose perspective on what's really important for the game. Cause with games, you could, you could spend an infinite amount of time on basically any aspect of it. So that decision of like, when is it done? When, uh, when do you move on is, is really tricky. Um, uh, and I don't, uh, it, yeah, it's it, it's tricky to make that um, to decide that. So, when you're working in early access, it can help you decide because if the whole community is like this part's awesome, but this part is whack or this part is missing, you know, what the game the game is totally missing this, mm -hmm. it can it can help jog that part of your brain when you're like, yeah, what am I doing? I keep tinkering away at this thing that everybody's happy with. Um, why don't I work on this thing that I know the game needs? Um, so it just helped us stay more focused on what mattered and and stay like really motivated i think as well just to keep uh, it, it it feels good to work on things that you know uh matter to people uh whereas I in the thick of it mm -hmm. while working on a game you can it's easy to lose sight of that uh in my in my experience of yeah. like why you know why am i doing this like does it, is anybody gonna care that, that goes that goes with so many creative projects too. yeah exactly <laughs> it's like because you're not i i mean some creative projects you do it's important, you know, sometimes you do do it for yourself, mm -hmm. uh, but but um, if you're doing it as as your job, uh, presumably you're also creating something for others, not just yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're creating it for others, then um, you, you benefit from knowing uh, <laughs> what they actually think. Mm -hmm. You may not, it doesn't mean you have to do sure. what they say, but you at least want to know how they're experiencing it and what they're... Uh, it's so valuable just hearing about people's experience with something you've worked on because you have your own hopes and dreams about how about how people will experience it you know oh this this story moment they're going to feel this way like but what do they actually feel you know did it land um so no knowing whether your work is is resonating or connecting the way that you intend is it lets you either make changes to get it closer to target or like proceed with more confidence uh, than you might've had otherwise. Yeah. Get, getting, getting more eyeballs on it and uh, yeah. acting as a sanity check type type thing too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well we've had you for longer than usual, <laughs> uh, for, uh, like as far as our previous guests go. And I think that is just because you're uh, great to talk to and we love hearing what you have to say about game development and design. And I also appreciate how we're saying the word roguelike without any judgment around here. I think <laughs> I think Metroidvania is fine. I think roguelike is fine. Uh. Roguelite is fine. Uh, so I genres are weird. <laughs> they're they're just shorthands, right? It's like they're they're weird, like RPG. Yeah. It's like it doesn't. It, they don't. The the <laughs> words themselves don't mean yeah. anything when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> immersive sim RPG action adventure game of the year. Like the categories, all they're all yeah. one thing. They all muddle together. Yeah, but they're great. 
I mean, Greg, Greg came from like journalism, journalism, game journalism background. We, we say whatever we want. We're the ones who make up the words, people. <laughs> we make up the words. <laughs> uh, so, well, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And one last thing. I didn't know that. I actually didn't know that you voiced Hypnos. I did. Can you do a line <laughs> as Hypnos in character? I can. Um, was that was that the line? Um, so yeah. Well, I can't. I I don't know that I I can't muster it that well. Um, let's see, because it's a it, voicing Hypnos was really fun because it's just getting to completely switch to a different uh, outlook on things. But um, we got we got we got I can I that that yeah. that was Thanks. Hypnos. <clears throat> Thanks for dying. <laughs> Welcome to the House of Hades. That's his kind of like classic line. That's we awesome. we do a little bit of processing on it, but I think I can get it. Um, no, close thanks for yeah. dying. I mean, uh, that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's we, like, we we imagine him as like a he's like a store greeter, right? And that's like that was uh, he's the guy, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Darren uh, Darren who did all the the voice directing he's like you know welcome to walmart and you know that sort of thing so <laughs> that's perfect that's how yeah. one we're of going small to studio uh, charms of like finding out like who actually like yeah this is the programmer who did this voice here and <laughs> it's incredible to like find those fun facts so thank you for yeah that. amazing we have new ringtones now so yeah <laughs> all right well thanks again for joining us greg and thank uh you. best of luck in all your future endeavors and i hope you have a little bit of downtime maybe uh in between games nice relaxing email free weekend yeah yes indeed yeah th thanks so much for having uh, having me on the show yeah hey we are back uh that i can't believe that we got hypnos we we conjured hypnos yeah that was like a little little fanboyish to kind of like be like can you do the line at the end but it paid off was i fawning was i fawning too much a, li a little bit it only yeah, came through yeah. most of the conversation that's okay i have more where that came from <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah i mean like what, what what was it that stuck out to you that talked so many uh interesting points that that greg brought up i really enjoy super giant as as a concept i don't know what that means uh but the the quality of game they put out and the kind of game they put out just oozes charm and they do it with such a small team and do it so consistently and then they took on early access and did the exact same thing and it's just it's really so, impressive and it's always great to hear how that process goes off in the background yeah so many other game developers must hate them <laughs> super giant just released another hit game developers hate them <laughs> There's uh, this is unrelated. Well, this is kind of related, but like uh, back when Pyre got announced for Supergiant was like right before PAX East, and it mm -hmm. was just kind of if I'm remembering right, it was there's a mystery new uh, Supergiant game that's going to be at PAX, and I'm like I'm going to be at PAX, and I managed to snag an appointment last minute, and like oh, nice. the, the hype around that is just so um, very Supergiant, and just kind of like it's that same kind of like fervor over this one studio's creation was carried forward into Hades and now everyone I talk to about Hades is just in love it's incredible totally have you bought Hades for anybody like for uh for the holidays or uh no my, my partner plays a ton of it um so I count that as a gift yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I as far as these uh indie developers go I think that it's like play entertainment like don't starve mm -hmm. Um, and, and they're and they're also doing uh, Oxygen Not Included and Supergiant, mm -hmm. I think, and, and subset subset games like Into the Breach and FTL. I think those for me are just how do you how, how is this repeatable? I think uh, my original like question notes for this, I'm just like, what's the one secret behind having a small team with doing all of this incredible stuff? And it's just the com camaraderie that like in every uh, Supergiant interview you read, including this conversation, mm -hmm. my dog in the background agrees. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like the the way a small team can work as like one cohesive whole and just through people knowing each other and through people playing different parts with like voice acting and art design and just like all of the, these kind of like pieces of a whole coming together is this like community yeah. creation project you can't you can't have or read an interview with anybody from supergiant without them throwing credit to you know uh the, the, their 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 teammates yeah on there i mean like gen, gen z uh you know who does the art there it's it, like 
that that's <laughs> it's so it's so like defining and sets them apart mm-hmm. just visually uh think that is you know just they're they're unlike any other uh indie game developer out yeah, there right now they're it- most all well not all because they're solo dev projects but like most projects are collaborations between teams and then it's just really wonderful when that kind of like energy comes through in every element of a thing like with Hades yeah and the uh, I, I could have you know we could have talked to Greg for so much longer about narrative design uh, just because I think I think like in the next few like it like in a few years we're going to see more roguelikes that adopt that are clearly influenced by Hades. Like there is um there's a template now, I feel like. So I think this is just gonna be Hades in particular from Supergiant is gonna be influential and uh you know, making more interesting yeah. uh narratively interesting roguelikes that aren't just about you know, getting really far and then, you know, and then dying and then rage quitting. That's how I play them anyway. There's nothing wrong with that also, but there's, like there, being, there's not, I don't want to disparage yeah. like other, you know, because I've, I love Spelunky, uh, for, <laughs> for example, I love, there. I love, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean like dead, dead cells is, is amazing. Uh, enter the gungeon. I got so into that. I love that format. I guess what I'm saying is that the, the way the consideration that you take is like okay you you I, I appreciate how the uh, the whole cycle of trying and and dying and trying and dying uh, is accounted for in the story. It makes it more interesting to mm-hmm. fail. Yeah, I would say a lot of <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of like roguelikes have that narrative interweave in there, but Hades leans into it so much that like it'll be interesting to see how that spins off into other games, maybe other genres that just, I, I love a good narrative heavy game and just having that so tightly interwoven. It's just, it's good narrative design. Yeah. Um, makes you, it, it takes the sting out of, you know, one of the main components of roguelikes, which is failing and death. Yeah. Ending on a happy note, failing and death. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, that's not darker than I, I meant it to, but Yeah. I know, and then of course there's. Um, I think a lot of the uh, end of 2020 roundup lists that a lot of them, if not every single one of them, did include Hades. Talked about Hades uh, is inadvertently <laughs> the game that represents uh, 2020. You know, <laughs> the best because it's just uh, trying to escape hell over and over again, failing most of the time, but with charm with charm <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have that charm yeah. that old uh, 2020 charm but we're not in 2020 anymore no, no. and <laughs> the hell's going on anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah so anyway thank you for joining us for this conversation if you like hearing us talk to game developers about the amazing things they do you can find more episodes of the gdc podcast on spotify the podcast house in itunes uh and we're over on youtube on the gdc twitch channel as or twitch channel ugh, over on the gdc youtube on youtube as well uh, and as mentioned in the intro, there's also um, GTC Showcase coming up where we will have five live episodes of the podcast where we'll be uh, seeing your questions in chat as we talk. So please and be those nice. Will, th- those will go, on the, uh, go in the podcast house as well. Yeah, so. yeah. All your content in one place. So you better uh, subscribe to those feeds that we just mentioned to keep in contact. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.